So, Mark. Yes. I want you, as I occasionally ask you to do, to use your imagination. All right. Let me to picture a world it on. that is not this one. Okay. I'm picturing early Victorian England. Okay. And what I want you to do is imagine that you are a man who walks with the animals. Talks with the animals. Uh, in fact, grunts and squeaks and squawks with the animals. I don't remember what that's from or what that is a reference to, but I feel like it's a reference to something. It is a reference to the movie we're discussing this week. Oh, was that in the... As you can tell, I paid a lot of very close attention to this movie I watched three hours ago. As I am quoting the breakout hit song of the movie. I hated it. Anyway, Anyway. (laughs) I need you to imagine that you are a man who walks with the animals, talks with the animals, grunts and squeaks and squawks with the animals. If that were the case, okay, which animal language would you prioritize being able to speak? So I've been thinking there's one animal that I think would be most useful, but I hate them. And then there's one animal that I think would be amazing, but I feel like it's less useful. So the useful one. Pigeons. They're everywhere. They can fly. They would be helpful for scouting out for schemes and capers. But I hate them so much, and they are aggressive in London, and I've almost been flown into on multiple occasions. And then it would just be nice to be able to talk to a dog, because it would take a lot of the effort out of caring for a dog if they could just be like, I have to go out now. Can I tell you something insane about talking to birds? What? The Marvel Comics character, the Falcon... Captain America's friend, he's played by Anthony Mackie in the movies. Okay. Is portrayed in the movies, and often in the comics it's just like, a dude who has some wings and he can fly. But the little used power he has in the comic books is that he can see through the eyes of any bird. That's incredible. Right. There is like a comics run where he basically uses it to set up like a surveillance system. Yeah. But that makes sense. But It is truly insane. And just thinking through this right now, I started to wonder, can he see through the eyes of Howard the Duck? (laughs) I feel like it's, he probably can, but it would be unethical unless he had the consent of Howard the Duck to use him in that way. It's like a psychic violation. Right. You know, those things that always are really freaky in movies and I hate to think about. Yeah. If you had to pick one animal... So I interact with animals less than you do. Yeah, there's not as many pigeons in D.C. There's not as many pigeons in D.C. I don't own a dog or particularly want a dog, so I don't have that going for me. I feel like if I were going to talk to an animal, I would want it to be an animal whose lifestyle is very different from mine so I could learn something. Whereas, like, I feel like if I could talk to a cat, the cat would be like, hi, I lounge around on a couch all day. I'd be like, me too. I work from home now. But instead, I would like to zoom with an ostrich. And just really get a sense of what that life is like. Hmm. I was also thinking about if you wanted a lifestyle different from yours, another useful one would be talking to rats. And I assume that in New York City, they murder at least two people a day. So that's a very different lifestyle from our anti-murder stance. Okay, there was just a report from DC Public Health that it is expected that rates of rat cannibalism are going to rise this summer. Ew! Because rats are so dependent on food supply from, like, restaurant dumpsters and stuff like that, and it's not there anymore. So the rats are going to start eating each other. I hate that. That's disgusting. There are a lot fewer rats here than in D.C. People are always astounded. I'll be like, oh, yeah, I saw a rat one time. It was probably about the size of a cat. And they're just like, what the are you talking about <laughs> how dare you I'm just like yeah they get fairly large in dc <laughs> they could probably I mean, but kill that's you. classic american megafauna like you go back to the 18th century the whole thing is about the americas have all these enormous creatures like the moose and the rats that eat so much shit including other rats that they grow to unusual size you could say by the way speaking of rodents of unusual size as we're recording this the princess bride just went on disney plus and i would like to formally register my objection that i had to rent this movie because for some reason fox's 1967 adaptation of dr doolittle is not available on disney plus i was extremely grateful for stars encore which is a channel that i assume my parents don't know they subscribe to but it was available to me through them so i did not have to spend money on it anyway Anyway, fiona which (laughs) animal would you speak to 
I think I would pick a dolphin just because they are pretty intelligent animals and I want to be able to have an intelligent conversation. Could you give us a sample of dolphin language right now? That was pretty good. Pretty good. I'm Thank actually you. pretty impressed. Ooh, I... another one would be uh, octopuses so that when they inevitably take over human society, being able to communicate with our new overlords would be helpful. Yeah, they're, they're pretty smart too. Do you know about the octopus LSD study? No. Wait, I think I I've tell heard my students of that. about this in psychology because I think it's amazing. This was like two years ago in the New York Times. Some psychologists, biologists did a study with octopi. Octopi are very solitary creatures. They don't like hanging around other octopi. This is our sole advantage in terms of their eventual attack on us. And what they did was they put an octopus in a tank and it could like get to two other tanks from there. And in one of them, there was like a puzzle or something. And in the other one, there was a second octopus. And the octopuses pretty much invariably chose to go to the one with the puzzle. Unless you gave the octopus LSD first. In which case, they would go to the other octopus and hug it. So we cannot release LSD into our oceans. (laughs) Correct. That will be the end of society. The plot of Dr. Doolittle 2 is him trying to stop that, I assume. Probably. If they make a Doolittle 2 because Doolittle wins Best Picture by default, I will be very annoyed. We should start the episode talk about our history with Doolittle, but I will alert you, Mark. We have been rescued. The Academy has said that, for this year only, movies that were supposed to be released theatrically and instead came out on demand are still eligible for awards. Thank goodness. Thank God. So Trolls World Tour is going to be okay. Oh, I was so worried that they would (laughs) not get the Academy Awards they deserve. Anyway. (laughs) Her best international feature film because it's a world tour. (laughs) Now, when they say world tour, does that mean the trolls are going, like, on a concert tour across the world? Isn't it actually more of- Do you actually want to know the plot of Trolls World Tour? Kind Isn't of. it more of a world's tour? Because don't they go between worlds based so, no, off the they, trailer? They go around the troll world. The premise of Trolls World Tour, a movie I have not seen, is that the main trolls from the film Trolls are primarily pop music trolls. And they discover that there are all of these other troll cultures, like rock trolls and country trolls. Um, there are also like sub troll cultures like the k-pop trolls are like not part of the pop ones they're like bounty hunters or something it's weird anyway rachel bloom is the queen of the rock trolls and she wants to conquer and destroy and subsume all of the other types of music they all have these like it's basically infinity war so they all have these strings magical strings that allow them to play their music and Rachel Bloom wants to take all of the strings and unite them so that rock can dominate everything. I mean, get that coin, Rachel Bloom, but ugh. This is sounds... not something I need to see. I will also pass on spending any money to see this movie at home. But it's caused a lot of drama. Now AMC yes. movie theaters aren't going to show universal films because of this. I mean, they're all bluffing with each other. Yeah. Mark, you probably missed all of this. Yeah, I don't actually know what's happening there. So Universal announced that Trolls World Tour was the most successful on-demand video of all time, which, like, isn't that impressive because it's the only family film that was released this way and no one has anywhere else to go. But they made this announcement and they're like, we're going to be looking at doing this with all of our movies. And AMC was like, the hell you are, and said that if Universal does day and date on-demand for their theatrical releases... AMC theaters will refuse to screen Universal films because they want that exclusivity window. So then AMC said they were going to boycott. Then Universal walked it back and we're like, no, no, no. We, we didn't mean we were getting rid of the theatrical window. We just meant like some movies will go on demand more than we would have in the past. So basically they're bringing back direct-to-home video Disney sequels like Aladdin, Prince of Thieves. I honestly think that's where they'll wind up. And Cinderella 3, A Stitch, A Twisted Time? I don't know, I didn't see that one. I think it's a one. twist in time. I think it is twist. I have not seen that. I think I've seen part of it. Mark, one day we should do a mega episode on direct-to-video Disney sequels. Uh, I wonder how many I could watch before wanting to claw my eyes out. Because they're all available now. Right. Should we start the show? Yeah, let's I do it. I think we're all dreading talking about this <laughs> weird, terrible movie. So, welcome no, to I'm We so Love the Love. A Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm Yay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the most important question in the year 2020. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation or if it kind of comes and goes and it's frankly hard to tell who the romance is between. We will dig in and see what is there. This week, as you have already heard, we are rejoined by my sister Fiona, hashtag Fifi Fierce, to explore the weird word of animals in the infamous 1967 Best Picture nominee, 
Dr. Doolittle. This is the most angry I've ever felt that this has a Best Picture nomination. So do you want to start there? Yeah, yeah. can we start there? Because it's the most egregious. It must have been studio politicking because every review was also terrible. So we have talked about this Oscar year before. This is the same year that The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner were nominated for Best Picture. We have not yet discussed the winner, which is In the Heat of the Night. So we've done four of the five now. Now, in this year, it's worth noting, this is still a period where the Oscars were pretty much dominated by the studio system. That doesn't really change until the 1990s, when you see the rise of Miramax and New Line and those independent studios. In 67, Fox didn't have any real serious Oscar contenders. The one they thought would be a contender had been a big flop, so they decided to make Dr. Doolittle into Wait, one. what was that flop? This was also a huge flop, though. Valley of the Dolls had been a bigger commercial hit, but the critics hadn't really liked it. And they figured there were enough pieces here where they were saying like, you know what? We could probably get some nominations here, but Dr. Doolittle isn't going to win a big thing, but you could probably negotiate some technical awards or something. And I think it got one for a, an original song, right? It did. They won the Oscar for original song for Talk to Animals, the song that Mark forgot existed. Honestly, all the songs are have run into each other in my head. We're going to have to talk about the disaster that is the music of this movie. Uh, they also won an award for visual effects. That's fair enough. It should have been Bonnie and Clyde, though. Yeah, it should have been Bonnie and Clyde. I will say the opening animation of this movie is actually really cool. And then everything else from there is utterly downhill. Here's what's insane about this. This movie has really good opening animation that starts two and a half minutes in. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I could not figure out what was happening when I'm hearing music and the screen is just completely black. So I rented it on Amazon and there actually was a note in the description that said, note, this movie starts with two and a half minutes of score with no picture on the screen. Which they didn't give me. And every other movie that I've seen with an overture has a nice little colorful background and maybe even the word overture on the screen. But this is what's wild about it is that this movie has this really cool title animation and they don't use it for the overture, which would be really fun, actually. It makes no sense. I just watched, I haven't finished it yet, but I started watching Funny Girl, and it also starts with a black screen overture before getting into animation, and it worked better because I believed that this deserved an overture more, but I think you need something on screen if you're gonna do an overture. So I missed this animation because I couldn't figure out what was going on, so I was fast-forwarding, and then I went too far, and then I was rewinding, and I went back all the way to minute zero second zero and so then i started fast forwarding again and then i went too far again i had a lot of back and forth and i missed all the animation it sounds like a hard time for you it was one of my theories with the overture is that this is a period where movie studios are struggling because the rise of tv means that it is harder to get people to turn out for just anything meanwhile there is more pushback against the production code so it's a question of what audiences want to see and one of the things that from the late 50s had still been a reliable moneymaker for a lot of studios were what were called roadshow productions. And these were big movies like Sword and Sandals epics or big musicals or stuff like that that wouldn't just open nationally at once. They would start in a couple of cities, like five or fewer, playing in the big old movie palaces. And then they would move across the country to different metro areas, playing in the historic movie palaces downtown. And then after they had done that sort of tour, then they would go to traditional cinemas. And in the movie palaces, filmgoers would pay a more expensive ticket, sometimes see a longer cut of the movie, there would be an intermission. And I was wondering if like adding the overture was designed to make that experience feel more dramatic and exciting. I'm in this big old theater, we've got this overture, it's all very, very cool. It's also worth noting that to do a roadshow production, it had to be long enough to justify an intermission, which generally meant you had to get at least two hours and 30 minutes. Ugh. That explains a lot. So there's a financial incentive to make your movie longer, almost like we talked about this on the How to Train Your Dragon episode, the glut of post-converted 3D movies around like 2010, where they're saying, hey, this is kind of bad for the movie, but in the short run, we can make more money. You see a similar thing in the late 60s with all of these roadshow productions. This movie was so long. And has so little plot. It has so, so little going on. I didn't know what they were saying half the time. The songs all felt the same to me. It was a lot of Rex Harrison talk singing. I watched this and I realized, especially at the end, 
I hate Rex Harrison. <laughs> well, I mean, he's also a very bad person. Oh, I he's, didn't even know that. Did you know, know he's that. been married six times? I did not know that. Yes. I knew he was quite anti-Semitic. Oh. And heaped a lot of anti-Semitic vitriol on Anthony Newley, who played Matthew Mugg. Ugh. That's unsurprising, to be honest. From an Englishman of his generation, yeah. 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 I just... He's not good. He's not really good in My Fair Lady 2, which is the only other big Rex Harrison movie I've seen. He does his stupid talk singing and always gets a woman that's way out of his league, and I hate yeah. it. So Who's Harrison, also much younger than he is. Much. So Harrison is like part of how the movie got made, and we'll talk more about that in a bit, but he was brought on originally because he had been in Camelot and there was a sense that by the point they were starting to put this movie into development that he was kind of a star on the wane so he was like a big name that you could get cheap and they convinced him to do it by telling him that Alan J. Lerner who wrote the music for Camelot was doing the music for Dr. Doolittle they convinced Lerner to do it by telling him Rex Harrison was doing it so they lied to both of them but it worked the classic oh mom said I could dad said I could yeah And they came on board to do it. Lerner was going through a very contentious divorce and also writing a musical and ultimately wrote nothing for this movie, but just cashed paychecks for about a year and a half. So then he left the project and that's when Leslie Bercuse came on. And Rex Harrison complained about Leslie Bercuse all the time because he said Bercuse was trying to write songs that would work primarily as standalone hits. Harrison also kept making demands that like he be allowed to sing live on set at one point. There was a character in the movie called Bumpo, who's from the books. He is an educated African that Dr. Doolittle befriends. And they originally cast Sammy Davis Jr. And Rex Harrison refused to work with a song and dance man. He didn't want anybody who would be funnier on screen than him. What a grump. And he insisted that they cast Sidney Poitier, who agreed. Sidney. (laughs) You're already in two of the best picture movies of that year. So the thing is, those movies hadn't been made yet. And Sidney Poitier is in a weird zone where he's already won his Oscar. But there aren't that many roles for him. Because he's like the one one big name black actor and he's kind of bored of just like playing an unimpeachably virtuous person but also doesn't want to play anybody too villainous because he doesn't want the one famous black guy on screen to be really really villainous so Poitier agrees to do it then they cut him because they needed to save money anyway uh Harrison like I said he was a big jerk in the production at one point when they were shooting on St. Lucia he lived on a boat during that period and at one point They were shooting a scene he wasn't in, and he sailed his boat into the shot and refused to move for two hours. Why? I... What? Why? That just makes no sense. Correct. Did he say why? No. Um, actually, when he was complaining about Leslie Bercuse, the songwriter, he actually forced Arthur Jacobs, the producer, to secretly hire a second songwriting team to write alternate music. But that stuff was even worse. It just hit me that he probably especially did not like the idea of Sammy Davis Jr., who was both black and Jewish, which I doubt Rex Harrison was a fan of. Oh, I'm sure. I didn't find any accounts of Rex Harrison being particularly racist to the black people involved in the production, but I did find reports of some of his entourage being explicitly racist to the black people in the production. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. The guy who plays Matthew Mugg is also, like, he's not great, but I... He's better than Rex Harrison, at least. So that is Anthony Newley, who was Leslie Bercuse's comedy and songwriting partner. So he was, like, doing comedy stage shows and writing songs. He and Bercuse wrote the theme song for Goldfinger. They also, I think, wrote Feelin' Good by Nina Simone, which is just insane. Yeah, they had a bunch of hits. They got nominated for an Oscar for the score for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So they must have just truly also hated this movie then, because they are not turning in stellar work. No, they really wanted it to be good, and they like wore themselves out trying to make it good. (laughs) (laughs) They missed the mark. Right, but no, the thing about this movie is that everyone was working so, so hard to make something good. Like, they really wanted it to happen. People had been trying to adapt the Doolittle novels basically since they started coming out in the 1920s. But Hugh Lofting and then later on his estate were really particular because they wanted the material to be taken seriously. By which I don't mean like no jokes. I mean, they just wanted it to be taken seriously as material. So then finally, Arthur Jacobs bought the rights in 63. But the deal was he had to have a script and a studio within 18 months. And that's when he did the like lying to Alan Lerner and Rex Harrison to get them together. And Fox agreed to do it because they're in this horrible middle spot where they're coming off of Cleopatra. So they have oh. no money. Oh, wow. And they desperately need a hit. Like they have just had this disaster that spiraled way over budget and they're in a real trouble. 
The other problem is that while this movie was in early development, The Sound of Music, Mary Poppins, and My Fair Lady all come out in a 12-month window. What a year. So what that means is that now everyone's like, wait a minute, musicals are huge business. So the way to make a giant hit is to make a musical that the entire family can go to. And so that's when Fox is like, all right, Dr. Doolittle, like, you're going to be our next big musical. You're going to be the next anchor of this studio. That also is what turns Rex Harrison from kind of a has-been into a big star again, which means that he is then able to be more demanding on this production. You know what? Go ahead. I think you had more to say. Well, I was just going to say that by the time the movie was done, its budget had spiraled to $17 million, which is staggeringly expensive for the time. It was one of the most expensive movies Fox had ever made, and it cost more than the other four Best Picture nominees combined. Oh my god. Oh, wow. The problem is, none of the songs are catchy. You can't sing along to them. You can't be like walking around and sing a song the way you can a spoonful of sugar. The one song that maybe you could is that one, I've never seen anything like it. The one where they show them the the two-headed llama animal. I'm sorry, the push me, pull you? The push me, pull you. Yeah, I think that's a problem. I also think it's a problem that this movie has too many songs. Because when you go back to like Mary Poppins, That's a movie that has, like, six songs in it. It's not actually as much as you think. And what happens in Dr. Doolittle is you just are pounded over the head with songs over and over again. Which is not to say that musicals can't have a lot of songs. Obviously, there are great shows that are almost entirely sung through. But this movie throws songs that are not that different around with a relentless energy. And the problem is the songs don't really do anything for the story that much either. Right. So you're just sitting there while something drags on. And exactly. when one starts, you're like, good God, we're doing this again? And okay, we'll probably treat this later. I assume it must fit into the romance. The most romantic song in the movie is the one he sings to the seal that he yes! just throws <laughs> off a giant cliff. That was the worst. Se- I, that was one of the worst scenes because he literally made out it's with a seal. It's one of the best scenes. It's my after favorite singing scene. a love song to it. It's the only good scene. And it's, but also, oh, that's be- such a long sequence that barely matters. It doesn't yeah. matter. At, the one reason it matters I, oh. is because that's what gets him to jail, which is what forces him to hang out on the island for a bit, which is what forces him to do the moth thing. Like, if none of the Sophie stuff happens, he gets the money from the circus, gets on the boat, gets to the island and finds the snail. Like, it does nothing. It's a side quest designed to extend the campaign. And the weird thing about that was, like, how long did that last? He just, like, up and left the circus, his animal, the little boy, and Matthew Mug. He just left them. I also don't understand why they didn't just make the problem that he stole a seal from a circus instead of, granted, I loved it, making (laughs) him get arrested for murder because two people (laughs) think he just threw a woman off a cliff. Well, that's the other thing, too. Even if he's returning a seal to its home, why did he chuck it over the cliff? Why didn't he, like, go down to a beach and gently... Nudge it off into the waves. What is happening? Why were the clothes still on the seal when he chucked it over? Wouldn't that be fair? The seal got out of those clothes very quickly. Unrealistically. This scene was going around on Twitter, and it's when I finally felt I understood what yeet means. (laughs) Because someone just tweeted this video with the caption, he just yeeted that seal off a cliff. And I was like, I think I get it now. Yes. Because that is exactly what happens. So had either of you ever had any experience with Dr. Doolittle before watching this movie? I just gave you my experience. (laughs) Also, I have seen the Eddie Murphy one, I think. I have not even seen that. I feel like I've seen one of them. Yeah, I think you have, Will. I have not. Yeah, I think there was a sequel to the Eddie Murphy one, but I don't think I saw that. Oh, Mark. Dr. Doolittle 2 featured his daughter, (laughs) raven Simone. There are four, I believe. I may have seen that too. I believe I saw one of the Eddie Murphy movies. I also this year saw the true spiritual successor of Dr. Doolittle 1967, which is Robert Downey Jr. in Doolittle, a movie that is similarly disastrous and unfocused. I will say it's probably better than this one because it's at least like engaging at times. And it's also only 100 minutes long, I saw. It's also quite a bit Oh, that makes it better. But that also, like, it's a movie that feels like they cut large chunks out of it. Well, this movie felt like multiple movies smushed into one. That's because it was like four books smushed into one. I know. It's an adaptation of three books, The Story of Dr. Doolittle, The Voyage of Dr. Doolittle, and, of course, Dr. Doolittle's Circus. I hated it so much. I couldn't even tell you most of what happens. And it's like, I was 
That's try to pay happens. attention, but my brain just stopped. We spend like 30 minutes in the flashback with his sister about why he became Dr. Doolittle. Why didn't oh, they just start I the know. movie there? That was far too long. Also, is his sister his maid? I think she takes care of the house. Okay. Well, she just had a maid outfit on. But I did check and like the Never Seen Anything Like It song sung by Richard Attenborough ends at exactly the one hour mark. So Doolittle arrives with the push we pull you and you have watched an hour of this movie by that point (laughs) and there's basically nothing going on. And I think the fundamental problem with Dr. Doolittle is that the movie thinks it has a plot. And the movie thinks this because early on in the movie with Tommy Stubbins, they introduce the idea of the pink snail. And then when... Long Arrow sends the Push Me Pull You. Long Arrow's note says, it's so that you can have the money to go get the pink snail. And that's what brings Doolittle to the circus, so that he can raise money to get the pink snail. And then when Doolittle gets out of jail, he's like, great, we're going on the boat so we can go get the pink snail. So in the movie's brain, because I do think this movie has achieved sentience and is now (laughs) raging through the world. In the movie's brain, it thinks that it is consistently about Doolittle wanting to find this pink snail, which, by the way, is not all that pink. It's not pink, and they also never really explain why. Right. They never give us a justification, which is not to say that we need, like, the pink snail to be, like, the cure for the queen's illness, which is why Doolittle has to go in the Downey movie. Queen Victoria's dying, and he needs to get something. I just need any reason. I need a reason to care. He doesn't even say it's like, I'm a super important naturalist who's friends with Charles Darwin and I'm doing this for science, which I think is the idea behind it, but they never make it very clear that even that. But the other thing is that, except for those scant mentions that I just highlighted, Doolittle never does anything that suggests he cares about this. We have no reason to think when he's at the circus and we see all of that going on, that he's even thinking about the pink snail, except that we were told once. It just seems like he is wandering through his life and every once in a while the movie remembers that it needs to have an end point. And that's part of what makes it feel so interminable is that when another song comes on that is just like a person doing whatever, you're just like, what does any of this mean? And what it means is that the movie needs to be long enough to be a roadshow. The only good thing about this movie, because it's not even fun to watch bad, except for the moment when he throws a seal off a cliff and gets arrested for murder. That is the only time I enjoyed myself in any way remotely. I think it's a little bit fun the more you know about the production, because then you're watching a scene and you know how dreadful things are there. Like, for example, during the talk to animals sequence, you know that the floors are all slanted because the animals were pooping too much, so they had to build sets where it would be easy to swoop animal dung out of the way. Ew! That makes watching that scene more fun. I would also say, like, when you see the giant snail, that's more fun when you know that they shot that on St. Lucia, and the giant snail was pelted with rocks by the locals because the local children had recently developed a gastrointestinal disease from eating freshwater snails. Oh my gosh. Oh my god. I, I also liked um, the little foxes at the beginning. You could tell that they were chihuahuas and Pomeranian puppies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They don't look like foxes at all. No! <laughs> Sheila the mother fox is also clearly a puppet. Oh, yeah. Not a bad puppet. No, but it's also, I it, think it's like the only real puppet besides the made up animals. Yeah, and I mean, of course, the push me pull you is two people in a car. Or, yeah. Wait, what do you like think? Like I they said, used the other non made up animals. That's Sophie, the seal, as she is uncredited on Wikipedia. Is she a real seal? Did he chuck a real seal over a cliff? I assume no, I mean, not. That's clearly not. You can see whenever Harrison is carrying this seal, it's got a very strange shape. It looks like a board with a seal's head sticking off it. Okay. I just, I was watching it and then they went to the island and a spear was thrown and I was just like, fucking hell, now we have to deal with weird ass racism. <laughs> I was fully expecting all of those actors to be actually in blackface once they threw the first spear i was so angry and it could have been worse but it was still so bad yeah this is toned down from the original books i can fully imagine in the story of dr doolittle bumpo the character who was going to be heavily adapted and then played by Sidney poitier originally of course by sammy davis jr like the final section of the story of dr doolittle involves him being captured in the kingdom of jolly and then Prince Bumpo agrees to give them a ship to escape in exchange for, and Mark, you just gotta let me finish this, in exchange for Doolittle's bleaching Bumpo's face white because his greatest desire is to act like a European fairy tale prince. Oh. 
just end the episode. I can't talk about this anymore. I'm so mad. If you grew up on Doolittle books and this seems unfamiliar, that's because in the 80s they released de-racist versions. Thank goodness. But also, I'm sure there's more that they did not erase. Like, subtle undertones. Probably. I don't know what all changes they made, but I know that they made those changes. (sighs) (laughs) That's so bad. Thank God they had the smarts not to put that in there. I guess the same year that Guess Who's Coming to Dinner came out, at least there was some conversation around race that would prevent that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, It is actually worth noting that the release of the movie brought a lot of attention to the racist contents of the original books and got a bunch of those books taken out of schools. So, like, this movie got Doolittle canceled. Wow. (laughs) Good. I hate... This is the movie that I think I have enjoyed watching the least. Maybe... of definitely not true for me. I think covered. that you've said that before on other movies that I've covered, Mark. Or I guess it was like, it's not as bad as Ghosts of Girlfriends Past. That's the worst one. That's still the worst one. But there was just so little redeeming quality. Howard the Duck, terrible. Still enjoyed it more than Howard this. the Duck <laughs> is interesting, at least. It, yeah, the choices it's making are fascinating. See, Fiona, you brought up when we talked about this with you on the show, I think that was for Night Before Christmas, a movie that is similarly incompetent in that it thinks occasionally having someone say they want to do something but make no motion towards that thing counts as having plot direction. Right. But at least that movie didn't have terrible songs. But it was almost as long, wasn't it? Was it? (laughs) No, I think we just thought it felt long. (laughs) I know Spirit of Christmas we thought was like three hours. I'm gonna check. I think Spirit of Christmas is still maybe the longest movie we've watched. <laughs> it's a 91 minutes long. Which the is Night like Before Christmas Titanics. is an hour and a half. Yeah, it also felt interminably long. Yeah, but unlike this movie, The Night Before Christmas had the audacity to threaten us with a sequel. Threaten? I mean, this, in a way... Is it not coming? ...is still threatening us because they made Doolittle movies in the 90s and in 2020. Yeah, but those aren't sequels. No. It's not the same thing. I have a question. Yes. In this whole movie, Stubbins is Tommy what? Stubbins, yeah. Eight years old, and his parents are just like, yeah, sure, go off with them. Is he Is he an orphan? Does he have parents? No, he has parents, and he has school, because that's the reason he gets on the sale, is he has to be back in time for school to start. So presumably, this all just takes place over the summer. So Tommy Stubbins is best friends with the local fishmonger. Who yes. only sells to cats and dogs. Correct. And by the way, let's remember that Matthew Mugg at one point offered to poison all the cats and dogs in town to get business for Dr. Doolittle. (laughs) Matthew Mugg is 90% limb as well. So Tommy Stubbins is friends with the local fishmonger. And when he has a duck that flew into a ship's mast, Matthew Mugg is like, oh, take it to my friend the doctor. I will sing a song about my friend the doctor that is not about the doctor at all. It's mostly about Ireland. (laughs) Oh, is that what the song was about? I think so. It's mostly yeah, about it's the like Irish. Dr. Doolittle's good because he could almost be Irish, but it's also in the most patronizing tone towards Irish people. Like this well, movie, a bad man who's got Patrick for his patron can't be all that bad. This movie clearly has no respect for the Irish. Well, it's <laughs> composed by Englishmen. <laughs> so anyway, so, so Tommy yes, Stubbins, back to Stubbins goes to Doolittle's place and doodle's like yes of course i can take care of this duck oh by the way it's raining too hard you shouldn't go back home so i will send this bird into the rain a thing that famously birds are bad at flying in and the bird will tell your parents so you have to imagine your tommy stubbins parents you live in puddleby on the marsh and a bright blue and yellow parrot flies into your home from a rainstorm and says your son is okay he's sleeping at a lunatic's house He'll be back tomorrow. (laughs) And then he doesn't come back tomorrow. He instead hangs out with Dr. Doolittle until the start of the school year. So here's another question about that. That night, he and Matthew Mugg eat bacon and sausages at Dr. Doolittle's house. You then find out that Dr. Doolittle is a vegetarian. So where did this bacon and sausage come from? I don't know. I did don't know. Did they kill one of his pigs? Where is Victorian era child protective services? Because this kid's parents do not care about him at all. I mean, the alternative is like working in a coal mine. So Yeah, I I'm mean, at least he, goes he is to in school. school. One other thing I really thought was interesting was that Matthew Mugg's pants in this scene blended in almost perfectly with the road. Okay, here's the thing. Matthew Mugg, 
He dresses pretty well. I he does. loved he his does. giant corduroy coat. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm into his outfits. I just didn't love the blending with the road, but the rest of it, I'm a fan of. Even his little puffy sleeves. I know it's their accent, but it was always disconcerting when they said Polynesia. Uh, Not gonna lie. It's like, I don't really fault them for it. It's no one's fault, but it still threw me every time they called the parrot Polynesia. It grated on my ears. That parrot was around to see the execution of Charles I, was 199 years old. I don't think anyone knew what Polynesia was back then. (laughs) So when was she named Polynesia? I mean, I was similarly surprised that Somebody made a reference in song to Hawaii, which at the time would have been called by an English person, the Sandwich Islands. They did catch Siam, though. Yeah. I did like one of Polynesia's scenes, though, when she's yelling at the horses and the dogs that are supposed to be chasing after Dr. Doolittle, and she's, like, yelling at them to not follow orders, and they're all spazzing out. She's basically starting the strike i love that the animals go on general strike at one point (laughs) labor rise up fight the oppressors speaking of animals refusing to work one of the parrots who played polynesia learned to shout cut on set which caused a lot of problems (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh that's the best thing i've ever heard I love that parrot more than anything else. It's amazing. The parrot was trying to save us from the movie. (laughs) The parrot knew. The parrot knew. Also, why didn't they credit the voice of Polynesia? Polynesia. That's so rude. She was doing real voice acting. It's funny because I also watched Babe this week. And it's fascinating to see a movie with talking animals that works so well in comparison to this. And I think the key is that the animals in Babe, even the comedic ones like Ferdinand the Duck, have dignity. Oh, boy. You know who doesn't have dignity? (laughs) Dr. John Doolittle. Also, maybe all of the animal handlers on set who had to get treated for hepatitis because they got bit so often. Seriously? Oh my god. Well, part of the problem was that when they were doing their location shoot in Castle Combe in the UK, they couldn't use all the animals that they trained in Los Angeles because they trained all these animals and then they were like, great, we're going over to Castle Combe. And it was not until they arrived in the United Kingdom that they realized those animals would be quarantined by customs. Those idiots! they had to acquire a bunch of new animals in the UK and use those. Oh my God. Also, I've been to Castle Combe and it's very beautiful. Yeah, I want to go there. It did rain, actually. Because they were repeatedly told by the National Weather (laughs) Institute that it would rain a lot. And they said, no, we'll be fine. I am kind of annoyed that I... I've been there now <laughs> because this movie ruined everything that is good in the world. Oh, anyway, do you have any more facts, fun or earth shattering or otherwise? Or should we get into the romance of this movie? Um, Yeah, I got some some fun stuff to share. Um, Richard Attenborough won a Golden Globe for this movie for playing... Blossom, <laughs> owner of the carnival. Blossom's which I think is mammoth fun circus. Because it shows Richard Attenborough training himself to become a person who gets excited about showing people animals they haven't seen before, which he would later do even better in Jurassic Park. The other kind of like fascinating, unbelievable thing about this movie has to do with Samantha Egger, who plays Emma Fairfax. So she was a London stage actor. She had had a couple of roles in British films, but this is only her second Hollywood film. Previously, she was in The Collector as a kidnapping victim, but around the time this movie is going into production, she still didn't have a U.S. green card, so she had to leave the country every five months, and then when she came back, moved to a different house. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, I don't think I said this. The movie ultimately made, numbers are hazy because traditional box office reporting didn't exist, between 6 and $9 million against its $17 million budget. <sighs> Yikes. So it was a pretty substantial disaster. In part, it didn't benefit from the fact that the Jungle Book was still in theaters after opening two months earlier. So you could see an animal's jungly comedy that was actually good. Honestly, I can't believe Fox made it as long as it did if it went through Cleopatra and then this. Right. But, I mean, you know, they have a good 70s. Yeah. I'm currently looking at all the movies from 1967 that could have been nominated for Best Picture that weren't because of this fucking nightmare. Oh, we didn't talk about that. So, like I said, Fox didn't have a real Best Picture contender. 
So what they did was they booked 16 nights of free screenings of Dr. Doolittle on the Fox lot, and they offered free dinner and champagne to Academy members who were invited to it. So this is like considered the ultimate example of a studio buying their way to a Best Picture nomination. I would agree with that because so many things. The Jungle Book should have been nominated over this. Right. Absolutely. In addition to that Best Picture nomination, they were also nominated for art direction, cinematography, editing, score, and sound. I mean, the art direction isn't... It's not that terrible. No. Although I would say, again, the great pink sea snail ain't that pink. Why? Why, though? Well, the inside was And in the pink. book, it's a glass sea snail, so they made a choice to change it to pink and then didn't make it pink. I don't get it. I'm angry about it, and I hate it. Anyway... Yeah, I do think we should talk about some romance, though. We got less because in the original cut, Doolittle and Emma Fairfax did actually start a relationship. But that got cut because test audiences thought that the first cut of the movie was too long and boring. How did this make it? Yeah, this is the shorter version. Jesus Christ, I could not watch one more second of this. But it does make sense with the roadshow thing where, like, generally it was accepted that you needed to be 2.30 for a roadshow. And this is, like, that on the dot. So they shortened it to the point that they felt they could financially. Right. Wow. So every week on this show, we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to help us answer the questions we are determined to investigate. And in this week's movie, I have very little idea what's happening in the romance (laughs) at any point. So I'm very excited to hear your thoughts. Would you say that you are as confused as Crown Prince Angelicus of Brandenburg, who is so well-bred he doesn't know what a mouse is? Is that a quote from a song? (laughs) No, that's just what the rich lady who goes to her doctor said at the beginning before getting assaulted by mice. Back in the flashback. Right, the the quite long flashback yeah before all the chaos breaks loose and there's like people getting injured because of all the animals in his house in a scene that is just painful because it thinks it's so funny how long was polynesia sitting around doolittle's house not speaking to him because this is clearly the first time they've had a real conversation who knows Because I sure don't. All right, Fiona, you got to walk us through the romance because we will talk about this movie forever. Okay, so point number one is the meeting. If I were a man, I'd scratch his eyes out. I'd tear his hair out by the roots and kick his shins in with my boots. And I would bite his hand as only I can, if only I could be a man. So this is when Dr. Doolittle is fixing a horse that I believe is nearsighted, and he gives it some glasses, and in marches- A truly incredible visual. Oh, yeah. In marches his neighbor with his niece, and they're yelling at each other about a stolen horse, and you can't put glasses on it and disguise it and think I'm not going to realize it's my own horse. And then the sergeant decides he's going to hunt these foxes slash Pomeranian puppies that Dr. Doolittle has in his office. Because naturally, when you're walking around and you're trying to just, like, harass members of the community, you also bring your foxhounds with you. Exactly. Well, he's late for a fox hunt because his horse was stolen. Does he say that? Yeah, he does. Oh, okay. I, I couldn't understand that. That is one thing that actually did kind of track. So they're yelling at each other. He gets sprayed by some skunks that Dr. Doolittle has hiding in his stable. And their horses that they did bring over to Dr. Doolittle's house run away. So then Emma Fairfax- So this guy, this like magistrate general Bellows or whatever his name is, he is now like the judge from Paddington 2. Like, he has a grudge against Dr. Doolittle, and is going to find a way to get his revenge. Right. So he runs off, and then Emma and Dr. Doolittle start yelling at each other. She's very upset that her horse has now been scared away, and she's going to have to walk back after all of this. It's worth noting, it is unclear how old anyone in this movie is supposed to be, except for Tommy Stubbins, who is a youngin', and that is his age. (laughs) Like, is Doolittle, like, a very old 30, or is he, like, 60? How old is Matthew Mugg? Is Emma Fairfax 60? Is she 25? I don't know. Nobody knows, but it's clear that they don't like each other. Doolittle and Matthew Mugg do like a full comedy bit about her name. Oh yeah, they call her Fred for some reason. It starts with like, they call her like Miss Bellows and she's like, that's not my name. And then she's complaining that they're disrespecting her. Like, you know, you wouldn't treat me this way if I were my uncle's nephew. And they were like, well, if you were his nephew, you wouldn't be named Emma. And so they start calling her Fred. (laughs) Okay. So then- On her way home, she is so mad, she sings a song, she compares 
Dr. Doolittle to Attila the Hun. And she that talks was the about- first time that I like groaned when a song started. I was like, again, already? Yeah, exactly. She goes on about how if she were a man, she would attack him. She would scratch out his eyes, but she can't do that because she's a woman. So they get off to a pretty a pretty rocky start here in their relationship. And in this period, then he gets the push me, pull you. And brings it to the circus where she goes and she sees the whole production of the circus. Okay, Emma Fairfax, we see her at the circus multiple times looking grumpy. We know it's different times because she's in different outfits. So she keeps going back to this circus being grumpy. I'm like, Emma, you can stop. You don't have to do this. I think she's working up the courage. Yeah, there's nothing else to do. And she's working (laughs) up the courage to yell at him because she yells at him for being a hypocrite because he claims to care about animal rights, but then he's using them to earn money at the fair. Do we want to do a detour on Emma's outfits? Sure. They're strange. They are absurd. The bonnets are as big as her whole body. Yeah, her best outfit is the white dress and the big white hat. But there are some that are truly absurd. There's one where, like, I think it's when she's at the at the circus where she has, like, a big hat on. And then she has her hair pulled together in, like, <laughs> two puffs on the front of her head. She looks like Hellboy. You can tell I hated this movie so much because I couldn't even notice the fun dresses. Like, I don't remember <laughs> the outfits because I just was not able to focus. I watched this with Rachel and there was a point when they got on the island and Emma comes out and we're like, oh, this is like probably her best outfit besides the white dress and the big white hat. And then Emma's like, no, this is my underwear. And we're like, well, I don't know what to do with you, Emma. (laughs) Well, uh, Dr. Doolittle said that too. He said it's her best outfit yet. Yeah, he was right. But we'll get to that later. So she hates him. She thinks he's a hypocrite. Um, Matthew then sings a song trying to change her mind about him, saying he's a man of fantasy, which I think maybe warms her a little bit. But I also thought this is the moment where I started thinking, I was like, oh, are she and Matthew going to get together? I think that's right, a bit cuter. Not yet. I didn't come to that yet. Here's the thing. It's to the point that this song, When I Look in Your Eyes, this like love song that Doolittle, it's like kind of a love song, I guess, that Doolittle sings at one point. They also recorded Matthew Mugg singing it to Emma. Like they did not have a plan. Okay. So then they gave it to him to sing to a seal. All right. (laughs) That solves everything. Great. Uh, cool, 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 cool. Anyway, is this when she gives Matthew a little kiss at the end? No, 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 not yet. Oh, not yet. No, that's in point two. Okay. Which we can start now. Point two, which is the growing interest. After today, I shall have bid my fears goodbye. After today, I shall have no more tears to cry. I'll learn to live with laughter, to stay after today. And this is where Dr. Doolittle is now on trial after killing a woman, which is really a seal who is not dead, so, but it was just Okay, as a we woman. have to walk through this because you're blowing past the most important romantic thing. So Doolittle gets the push we pull you, which is a two headed llama. Which I will say I kind of enjoyed. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, I kind of Shout did out too. to the two performers inside the push we pull you suit. Bringing that not only makes Doolittle a full partner in Blossom's Circus, he gets his name above Blossom's. It's Doolittle and Blossom's Circus. Oh, yeah. I guess because the sign is easier that way. Yeah, that was my first thought. I was like, oh, I guess they didn't have to repaint the whole thing. But then one of the seals at the circus is depressed. So Doolittle's <laughs> going to figure out what's wrong with the seal. This is when Emma and Matthew have their little heart to heart. And Matthew's like, no, 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 Doolittle's a good guy. He was just a jerk to you because he doesn't like people. And this is when Doolittle then discovers that Sophie the seal is upset because she misses her husband, who is at the North Pole. And so Doolittle hatches a scheme to steal Sophie away from the circus and get her to, I don't know, Bristol? Yeah, the Bristol Channel. Yeah. So that he can then throw her into the channel and she can swim to the North Pole. So he disguises her first as a baby and just starts pushing her up the road in like a bassinet. Eventually abandons that when he sees a woman walk into a tavern, steals the woman's clothes. He and Sophie hail down like a passing stagecoach, ride in that, steal a wagon, and make their way to the coast, where, as Mark said, Doolittle sings a love song to Sophie and chucks her in the sea. That was the first time I wasn't sure I was tracking the right couple. (laughs) It is a full-on love song, ending with, isn't it a pity you're a seal, and then he kisses her. A married (laughs) seal. Yeah, she's married. (sighs) God damn it. 
I hate it so much. So two people saw this and report Doolittle to the authorities. They do and he is put on full trial citizen's for arrest. Here's my question. So he's all the way in Bristol when he gets arrested, but his trial is back in Puddleby by on the marsh? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense, but we need Bellows to be the judge. Yeah. I mean, we don't actually know where Puddles... It's at least 30 miles. Yeah. Because there is a trail marker when he dumps the stroller that says 29 miles to Bristol. I guess, yeah. So it might be all within the same jurisdiction but i don't know for sure maybe anyway he finally convinces them he like says oh i can talk to animals it was a seal okay but let's can we talk about that when he brings in the dog and he's like oh i'm gonna prove it to you that i can talk to animals and he roughs at the dog and then the dog roughs back and he goes well this is what he said right this becomes fundamental to just trust him well the reason that it works is because he asks the dog what bellows ate for dinner the night before. Which we find out he lied about. He exaggerated, but he says it and Bellows basically confirms like, yes, this is what I had for dinner last night. Right, no, no, but Bellows lied about how much pie he actually ate. Yes. But during this, this is when Emma really kind of turns for real on Doolittle and it's like, oh, he's a good guy. And he wasn't lying about talking to animals and like, he is not abusing animals, he is working with them. Right, and she kind of gets a little dazzle-eyed look at him during the trial. Right, and he sings the song about like, how animals are all mistreated by humans and humans are the real monsters. Yeah, why do we treat animals like animals? And then he... I would say, rightfully, get sentenced for being... He needs, like, the queen's munificent care in a insane asylum or something. Very dramatically phrased by Bellows. And so he's getting sent to a hospital. Because he claims yes. he can talk to animals. Oh, but first, because the trial goes over the span of two days, I believe. And he's in prison overnight. And she brings food to him and to Tommy and to Matthew. How did she know that she Uh, would need to bring three meals to the prison? Because the three of them are inseparable. Why is Tommy never goes home? If Dr. Doolittle is in jail, you better believe that Matthew and Tommy are going to be sitting right outside of his cell (sighs) until he's free. Oh, God. I mean, in the flashback sequence, Doolittle has, like, his whole throwdown with Sarah where she's like, I can't put up with this house with the animals in it. And then Doolittle just goes back into his study and Matthew just lets himself in the back door and is like, well, doctor, you know, it's a pretty right sticky situation you got here. (laughs) So then she finds Matthew in the town and she kind of invites herself on their little cruise. She says that it'll be good for them because then they can eat the delicious food that she'll eat. But really, she just wants adventure. And this is the second time I thought I was tracking the wrong couple because she kisses Matthew and then he sings a whole song about the kiss. And about like it's the best thing it in the felt world. Like that, yeah. It was gonna. It was the happiest day. Everything was wonderful. So obviously, they're. The I was much more excited about them being a couple. Right, because Matthew's kind of fun. Cute. Yeah, yeah. He's one of the least terrible people in the movie. Exactly. So point number three uh, was when they are now on the boat. Right, Polynesia busts Doctor Doolittle out of jail. Has escaped. Yep. So they get on the boat. They're gonna go find this pink snail. I'm aware there are fabulous places wherever we say. Will we see them? We will. But the point of the journey is science and finding the snail. While they're on the boat. Now, Dr. Doolittle, I don't think he knew that Emma was on the no, boat. No, he did and not. He smells some some delicious food and he's complimenting Matthew on it. And Math- And then all of a sudden he discovers that it's Emma's cooking and she has been on the boat this whole time. Emma brought a lot of dresses on this ship. She did. And they fight over the purpose of their journey. He doesn't really have uh, any idea where the snail could be, so he's just going to sail the whole world until he finds it. Whereas, like, Emma has a bucket list of where she wants to travel to. Yeah, she wants to go to Monte Carlo. She wants to travel and sightsee and do all these fun things. And he's on a mission. I was fairly impressed with her list of places, too. She wasn't just like, oh, let's go see, like, Paris and all the fancy places. Yeah, but she was also like, let's go to Bombay and to Cairo and see all the real world. I think this is where Hawaii came in. Yeah, this is definitely when they mentioned Hawaii, which did not have that name at the time, according to the British. British Yeah. So they keep coming back to this argument that a ship is not a place for a woman to be. And so she says, okay, treat me like a man then. Which he does. It is and worth noting that cook. this style of traveling around it does come from the books. 
and the voyage of Dr. Doolittle, which is, by the way, the one with Tommy Stubbins. They do travel by pointing to random things in an atlas. It's called blind travel. Oh. So she actually is the one that puts the pin in the atlas, and she chooses Sea Star Island, which is a floating island. Yeah, it could be anywhere at any time. So interesting to put it on an atlas. And also, it was the last known spot that the snail was seen, and so Doolittle, for some reason, didn't think to go there himself. I thought they were saying that was the last known spot where the island was. Oh, that makes that more makes sense. sense. Yeah. There was originally a sequence where they were going to get attacked by pirates and have to deal with that, but they decided it was too expensive. And it would have added another hour to the movie. <laughs> yeah, the pace this movie went. So he turns her into a sailor and she's got to do all the scrubbing and cooking for them. She's working hard while they're kind of relaxing a yeah, little Yeah, they bit. work her harder than everyone else. Well, she wanted to be treated like a man, Mark. She did. She did. Although she did get scared during the thunderstorm and you know who she went to hug? Dr. Doolittle. And that's when I thought, Maybe I was right all along that Dr. Doolittle is the love interest of this movie. Maybe the movie changed its mind. Could be. Okay, so point number four is their island life. I think I'm learning something strange and new. But well worth learning. Because I'm learning about you. So their ship gets blown apart in the storm and they end up on Sea Star Island. Specifically, like, Doolittle and Matthew Mugg and Tommy Stubbins get to the island together and they're like, I guess we should, like, have some animals look for Emma. Don't know what happened to her. And Emma stumbles out, like, clearly having been there for a while and she's like, screw you guys! And this is when he compliments her outfit and she's like, this is my underwear. How dare you? And it is objectively one of her best outfits because it is one of the least insane. Exactly. But then here we get another song where she talks about how much she likes him and that she thinks he likes her too, but he won't profess any of his feelings. And then he says, I like you. And I think you like me too. So that's like the closest they get to a love song. That is basically never followed up on. Like I said, in the first cut of the movie, they do then start a relationship but that was eliminated in favor of treating all the animals with colds off screen. Yeah. Like instead well, we, so yeah, so we they... just get to watch other people talk about Dr. Doolittle treating the animals with colds. Well, we do see them making that broth or whatever for the elephant. So they spend some, well, first they get captured and then they escape. And then they tell the, the native people to the island that, you know, oh, I can, I can fix all your animals if they're sick. And he does kind of help them some. Yeah. And he eventually uses a whale to reattach the floating island to the mainland Africa where it had broken off somehow. Well, this was after, af- I think he caused like a rock to fall into the volcano. Right. And they're told that the tradition is if you do that, you're going to bring bad luck to us, so we'll have to kill you. So they're tied to the stakes, and while they're tied to the stakes, the whale comes along and nudges them back into the land, and it remerges and fits like a puzzle, to the point where even there was half of a tree on the island that merged with half of a tree on the mainland. So that tree had been exactly like that for 5,000 years. Honestly, I kind of yes, loved that moment. I did. <laughs> And then they find out that the tradition says anyone who rejoins the lands is treated as a god. And they also confirm to the doctor that the snail is real. And next thing you know, the snail swims up to the island. Sneezing. And yeah. and fully green. Yes. So uh, I'm ready to go to point five if you guys yeah, are. Yeah, let's get this show on the road. Point five is called Parting Ways. Do you have to come back one day? I hope so. A lot of animals depend on me. One or two people, too. This is after the snail shows up, and he tells Matthew and Emma and Tommy to hop in the snail and swim back to England, and he's going to stay because he can't go back. He's a fugitive from justice. He has escaped right. from prison. And he wants to look for a giant moth while he's on the island. So he'll be he'll, he'll be have plenty to a do. A moth that fine. will fly him to the moon. Yes. Where there Which is no air. Is a, very, is a very 20s idea. So Emma's kind of upset that he's sending her away. And she asks if she can go with him. And he said, look, I'm good with animals. I'm not good with people. You can't come with me. But I'll write letters to you. And she says she'll miss him. He's going to develop an elaborate bird mail delivery service. Yeah. They share their first kiss. And then she's crying the whole snail ride home. As Matthew Mugg says, if we drown, it'll be in tears. Matthew Mugg, by the way, is like noticeably bummed. And it's not clear whether it's because he is put out because Emma is into Doolittle 
or whether it's because he's sad that he's leaving Doolittle, or whether it's because he has to live in a snail for an indeterminate amount of time. I think they said two weeks. Or it could be all three. Could be all of the above. Yeah. Then we get a surprise where Sophie the seal and her husband show up. Sophie! That's when we learn that all the animals in England are on strike because of how Dr. Doolittle was treated, and so the people want him back. So he's been issued a full pardon. Yes, he has. And this is then where he finds that giant moth and he flies back to England. I'm guessing the this is end. then where we transition to the Downey movie. Because in the Downey movie, he like lives on royal property. And so part of the threat for him is Queen Victoria is very sick. And if she dies, the next monarch might not let him live rent free on royal property. Oh, no. Oh, God. All right. <sighs> I think we've probably and that given... movie, again, as a reminder, the Downey movie ends with him just shoveling stuff out of the butt of a dragon, including an oversized set of bagpipes that have blocked up the dragon's colon, and that's why it's so cranky. Ew. So I think we may have uh, alluded to our feelings about this, but after watching this movie, <laughs> do you find the romance believable? I don't know what to do with it. It's like the I movie <laughs> doesn't care about it, but then suddenly wants to hang eight songs on it. Right. I don't. I can't rate it. Like, no, this movie gets like a one. It's just because like, the the problem is that the movie has no interest in developing a romance, but also wants to spend a lot of time with people talking about it, but never showing any feelings of it. Yeah. It makes zero sense. If Emma and Matthew Mug got together, it would make a little more sense, but still. My God. So Fiona, we've got to rate the believability of this movie's romance on a 10 point scale, where zero means we believe none of it and 10 means we believe all of it. So where do you put Doolittle? I'm gonna give it a one. I just, I don't know. I don't know where it's going. There's nothing to, there's nothing for me to judge. I just, I don't understand it. I also feel like the character's feelings about it swing so wildly. Like, I don't know when Matthew Mugg is romantically into her versus just like being nicer to her. I don't know what makes Emma go from like, this dude is a real jerk to maybe being in love with him or maybe she's just like really horny and like any man that she's with she's like please i'm living in the victorian era there is no reason for her to love dr doolittle right so yeah it's got to be a one there's also like a 30 year age gap yeah there's no there's not even enough interaction between them right that's the thing do you guys think that doolittle emma or matthew mug are dateable doolittle hard no yeah, agreed. Emma also a no. Yeah, Emma's yeah. Pretty I would say annoying. Matthew Mug. He could be Matthew yeah. Mug is he also sells fish to cats, but he seems fun. I would not. He's like a borderline kidnapper. I think it's maybe. weird that his yeah, best maybe. friend is an eight year old. It's that Doc Brown situation. If you guys did have to pick someone in this movie to date, who would you choose? So, may- frankly, maybe Richard Attenborough. He does seem. I fun. was thinking maybe William Shakespeare the Tenth. Okay, sure. Unfortunate racial politics aside, he's a very capable leader who respects tradition as well as understanding that it might need to change and is well-educated and speaks nine languages, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I did like him. His home seems pretty nice. I I might lean Richard Attenborough, who doesn't do anything wrong. He seems like a savvy businessman. And if Doolittle's willing to go along with it, it seems that his circus is not abusive towards animals. True. He's very enthusiastic. He has very similar energy to Fezziwig in Scrooge, which has music also by Leslie Bercuse. Hmm. Never seen anything like it. Has real December the 25th energy. Yes. Who did you choose, Fiona? I'm, I'm going to go with you and pick William Shakespeare. All right. Do you- All right, Mark. <laughs> this is... Would Doolittle and Emma get together? The first time right. we've ever had to ask that question. This is my thinking. So Doolittle comes back to the UK. Does he start dating Emma? This is what I think happens. He comes back. She finds out he comes back, not from him, just from word of mouth through the town. Well, the animals start working again. (laughs) Yeah, the animals start working. So she just sort of inserts herself into his life. She'll do the cooking and the cleaning at his home, convinces him to marry her. And it's not really like a marriage of love. He's just like, oh, it'll make her happy. She'll stop bothering me. They get married. And she's like, yes, I'm married. I get to take care of the doctor and all of his animals and maybe go on some of his adventures with him. But during the day-to-day business, I don't think they interact much. See, the thing is, like, we hear so much from Doolittle about how he doesn't really like interacting with people. And I believe him. So I just have a hard time imagining him having a successful romantic relationship. I agree. I don't have much more to add. You guys covered it pretty thoroughly. Yeah. (laughs) Now, Mark. Yes. Many of the movies we have covered have been turned into stage musicals. Yes. So what I want to know is, this thing is already a musical. 
should the 1967 version of Dr. Doolittle be adapted for the stage? Unfortunately, I know that it has, and I am angry about it. What? In the 90s, I think, they did a run based off of this movie version of Doolittle. In the UK. In the UK. There's been a US tour, but it's never gone to Broadway, but there have okay. been multiple UK tours. Ugh. All right. I think... Oh, also, oh. one other fun fact about the music. Yes. Like I said, Talk to Animals actually like was fairly well known. And both Sammy Davis Jr. and Bobby Darren recorded full cover albums of all the music from the movie. So you can listen to Sammy Davis Jr. perform all of the songs in the movie. You can listen to Bobby Darren perform all of the songs in the movie. Oh, God. I can't talk about this movie anymore. I think we need to wrap it up. Next week, we will be watching a thriller with Rachel McAdams and Killian Murphy called Red Eye that I remember enjoying a long time ago. Will it hold up? Let's find out. It's like the ultimate cable movie. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I think I watched it on cable. I think it was direct to cable. <laughs> Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Ratings on Apple Podcasts in particular help new people to find the show. All right, Fifi Fierce, last question. What's the best piece of dating advice we got from Dr. Doolittle? Just insert yourself into their life and do all the cooking and cleaning for them. And they'll appreciate all that work you're putting in that they won't push you out of their life. All right, Will. Find an eccentric and abrasive genius and then befriend them so that as other people come into their orbit, you will be the more reasonable option. All right. I was thinking that falling in love with a married seal never ends well for anyone. (laughs) Uh, There you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye! Bye. Talk to the animals. Just imagine it. Chatting with a chimp and chimpanzee. Imagine talking to a tiger. Chatting with a cheetah. What a neat achievement it would be. If we could talk to the animals and learn the languages, maybe take an animal degree. I'd study elephant and eagle, buffalo and bee.